Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading teach to fish consulting firm Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, and myself, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. So, yeah, this is really one of the fascinating aspects of being a lay Catholic who brings incredible expertise into the church. And we're still kind of negotiating that process of where the boundaries are in that very complicated conversation. Okay, welcome back to Holy Donors. We are back here talking about John Raskab, and we ended episode three talking about the mark that he left on the world. So, Matt, let's jump back into having you tell our listeners about really what is a a turning point in his life. Yeah, yeah. So, remember, John Raskob went from a nobody absorbing every piece of knowledge he could, and in the mid-20s, at the moment he realized that he had become someone— from his time with the GM, with DuPont, the DNC, GMAC, the Empire State Building, he found that he was someone people listened to and a very wealthy one at that. He realized that he could apply the business acumen he had learned to help make a difference in the church he loved so much. Yeah, and David Farber, Raskov's biographer, gave us a little insight into John's philosophy when it came to putting his skills that he learned in the business world to use in the church. Let's listen. One of the things that makes Raskob so unique as a Catholic philanthropist way back in the day is that he really wanted to bring the kind of secular knowledge he had gained into the church. He didn't want to see them as separate. And it starts in Wilmington where he's again talking to the bishop there. And it's kind of this weird asymmetry where the bishop doesn't know what Raskob knows, that Raskob knows how to put up a building. He knows how to finance a renovation. He knows how to invest money wisely. And so you sort of watch him in the 1920s sort of gently at first try to get the bishop to understand how to do things better, which is to say Raskob's way, the secular way for the church. And then he eventually starts to try to spread that knowledge around the United States outside of his own uh, Wilmington diocese. And, you know, there's that famous letter that he gives to the diocese in Oklahoma, where he basically says the same thing. It's like, you got to let secular expertise play a role in the stuff that secular expertise should play a role, not in church doctrine, not in theology, but in how to invest money wisely, (laughs) how to create a bond issue to raise some money to put up a school. And, you know, again, this is new. This is not something that had been done before. And eventually, he'll he'll try to intercede some of that into the papacy, even into Rome. Now, already in Rome, there were people associated (laughs) with the Pope who had that kind of expertise. But it was pretty rare. And Raskob has even called on for help there. So, yeah, this is really one of the fascinating aspects of being a lay Catholic who brings incredible expertise into the church. And 
you know, we're still kind of negotiating that process of where the boundaries are in that very complicated conversation. So I think this is a good point to be made from Dr. Farber that here's John, this financial genius, and he is trying to take the gifts that he has and put it into the church and the faith that he loves, you know, and he kind of gets his start in a couple different fundraising efforts. One was on the financial side of the church when he was asked to be the rector of the Wilmington, Delaware's Cathedral to look over the financing of a new parochial school. You know, John wanted to create more of an urgency in the fundraising, so he had the priest start the building with money that he had quietly provided, and then he wanted the priest to raise kind of a cry for help, saying, we started, but our money's running low, we don't have enough to finish it, and they followed the plan, and, and it worked. It brought a sense of urgency into those who were giving to the parochial school. On another occasion, when he was asked for a $6,000 gift for the repairs for the cathedral, he proposed a form of a matching gift to incentivize the congregation to also take part. So what he did is he gave $4,500 under the condition that they would raise an additional $1,500 to match what he had already kind of given. So, Matt, I wonder if Raskob was kind of the originator of the idea of the matching gift. You know, that's a great question. And knowing his ingenuity in the finance world, it very possibly could. We couldn't find any documentation that that this was done before then. Uh, is it possible that it was? Maybe. But this was definitely something that, that he jumped on in, in the early stages of what it was. You know, there's another one, uh, another story, but um, where he became more involved in the Diocese of Wilmington. And in 26, he proposed that the diocese begin a building an endowment fund to provide a stable and, and kind of predictable source of income for the diocese long term. He basically plotted out how to structure what would later be known as a not-for-profit corporation dedicated to the Wilmington Diocese. Yeah, so it sounds like Raskob may have come up with the idea of the matching gift. Yeah. And he may have come up with it. Maybe he didn't come up with the idea, but at least he took mainstream the idea of an endowment fund and a Catholic foundation. We know looking at some of the records, 1902, there was a Catholic foundation set up in the Diocese of Sioux City, Iowa, but there were not Catholic foundations. There were not endowment funds, certainly not within the church at this time. And just to underscore what this means for fundraising, you know, I've been fundraising for now 15 years, 15 plus years, and I've raised a lot of money for endowments. You know, when I was at the foundation, at the university foundation, that was all we raised money for. We were trying to establish the long-term permanence of programs, of scholarships, of, you know, endowed chairs with a lot of the Catholic ministries that we've worked with. We've raised money for a lot of endowments to endow maintenance, to endow operations, to endow, endow programming. So it's fascinating to kind of go back and unpack kind of where this all started and to understand or to know that at least a good part of the impetus of making these popular and common came from a guy who previous to this had had not really been a fundraiser. He'd been a donor, right? We'd heard, we'd heard about, you know, never turned away a priest, uh, oh, you know, yeah. had supported yeah. the Diocese of Wilmington significantly over the years, had supported, you know, family, friends, those people that are just kind of down on hard luck, and yet hadn't really been a fundraiser, and yet is pioneering ideas and concepts that still live on to this day in, in the world of fundraising. Yeah, and could you imagine a 
a time when they didn't have a matching gift program. I mean, that is is like your staple. Like, it's like a staple, yeah, yeah, absolutely. For almost every every good development program in the country is a matching piece at some point in the year. So for me, that just kind of blows my mind that this was also, if he didn't create it, he was one of the first ones to put it in place. I yeah. thought what was interesting about his matching gift uh, set up there, which is, uh, this may be speculation, but maybe it also ties back to, it's still... Uh, an immigrant church. It's still a largely working class church for the most part. Notice that his matching gift was $4,500 and all he was asking for from the parishioners was $1,500. So way out of balance. That's not typical these days, right? I mean, usually it's a one for one kind of a match usually that you see, right? Yeah, exactly. So I thought that, that was kind of interesting to me. Yeah. And he's mindful of the audience that he's yeah. asking this priest to go fundraise from and recognizing they can't do as much as me even collectively. So, but what can they do? He's kind of respecting the human dignity of the people in the parish of saying, let's let them have some skin in the game. Yeah. We're going to have more buy-in. We're going to have a better parish community by doing that. Really neat. Matt, I know you're going to kind of tell us a little bit more about how he pioneers some more lay involvement in the church. But in a way, you know, this is kind of maybe this started to whet his appetite, right? Like how can how can I as a lay, as a donor have, I don't want to say have influence, but basically how can I help to guide the strategy when it comes to this fundraising, when it comes to the operation in a gentle way and a non-threatening way, in a way that actually gets even more of the lay, the laity involved in this process. Yeah. And when you talk about that, you've got to also remember in the same context that this is a man who sat at the table with Pierre Dupont and with these magnates of people and raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. I mean, this was on, on the scale of what he did in the business world. This is on a very small scale, but yeah. again, being uh, an immigrant church at the time, this was major for the, for the church, but it was a very small scale piece that he was doing. But yet as he did everything in, in his life, he brought this, kind of genius way of going about it to accomplish his goals. Yeah. What were some of the other groups that Raskob donated to? He was actually approached by Mother Superior with the Ursuline Sisters. Did I say that right, guys? Yes, sir. Yes, you did. You oh, did. Very good. To give a gift. But the way, what makes this kind of funny in this story is the way that she, she approached him, which is she wrote him a letter and said, you will be giving us $250,000 to this project to build a new... He <laughs> 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 wasn't asked. He was told that he was going to give this. And, and this really kind of rubbed Raskob the wrong way. He kind of took it in and was taken aback by it and actually reached out for some help from other priests to figure out, how do I handle this? And and he ended up giving them a gift, and it was the major gift for their campaign for a new place, and it was the largest gift that he had given up to this date. But it's just funny how the gumption of this mother superior that she had to approach him. In, in hey, this she way. got she knew about his reputation of do big things, do great things, just go for it. I mean, she was trying to you know <laughs> yeah, show up to him, skip the song and dance, and yeah. hey. You're going to give me $250,000. Yeah, I thought, I thought Mr. Raskob, this is how you like people to operate. Let's let's go here. He didn't he didn't think so. No, he didn't think so. He was actually a little offended by it, but being a good Catholic man, he still he still gave to Mother Superior, just not at the level that that she had requested. I suppose some of what entered in there probably was kind of going back to our previous discussion was Raskob's own confidence that 
listen, you know, I've got the business acumen here, and you may think that this is what you need, but I can assure you that this will be sufficient, at least from me. And now you need to go, you know, maybe get some other donors to contribute and get some other people who are a part of this effort and and like that. So I think that it's an interesting illustration of that earlier discussion that we were having, too. Yeah, absolutely. So we say all this about the matching gift, about the endowment and still giving to Mother Superior's house to kind of lead us to a point where where John made this realization that the financial decisions in a diocese needed to go outside of the clergy. It needed to be done by professional laity. And so he got this idea that he wanted to construct a new way of diocese to run their financial decision-making and kind of give back, as Dr. Farber said, give back those decisions to people who do this professionally and let priests, clergy, bishops do what they've been trained and what they're really good at. Yeah, so this, to me, this sounds really pretty huge, and it was largely unheard of at the time, if I'm remembering what you've you know kind of schooled us on, Matt. He's arguing that priests should be trained in theology and its religious and social consequences, kind of like what, like you said, Dr. Farber was, was pointing to, but that the burden of finance, the business side of running the diocese, the managing the capital investments, take that off of the clergy's plate so that they can focus on the shepherding of souls and let the lay experts handle that with, uh, Raskob was very clear about this, right, about that the bishop, of course, would have the final, what he called, quote, ultimate responsibility. I think that this is fascinating. And to go back to a point that you made in a previous episode, in the corporate world, there wasn't this class, I think you called it the class of corporate manager Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. prior to the turn of the 20th century. And John was really kind of part of that early class and almost helped to kind of guide and to give leadership to that corporate management mentality, both Mm -hmm. his work at DuPont and then the work that he did at, at GM. And he was witness to that. He was a part of forming and shaping it. And I can't help but to think that now in this phase of his life, as you mentioned, Matt, like he's kind of had this this shift in his mentality of where he wants to devote his energies. Now he's kind mm. of trying to say, hey, can we build up a class of church managers who are not the clergy, who are the laity, who I can be part of that. I can bring in my colleagues and others that I've worked with. And so he's hoping to be part of that. And in fact, he's having conversations with church leaders, with priests, with clergy, with bishops, really all around the country and all around the world on this very topic, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a great story or actually letter from the Bishop of Oklahoma when the bishop wrote him and said, John, we need some help. And John wrote him back. And here's a great quote from him. Personally, I'm a great believer in the church working out some scheme under which the clergy and the laity will work together, and those things having to do with the temporal side of the church. In other words, I feel that it is important to have the lay people actively interested in the problems of the church in order that they can and may assume responsibilities in an intelligent fashion. One of the other things he stressed in that letter is that Catholics had to be willing to speak out and make suggestions, even at the risk of upsetting their parish priest in the name of making the best decision possible. And you know what's really interesting to me here is that Raskob, he's kind of anticipating a call that would be made at the Second Vatican Council, really, 
there's a document from the council called Apostolicum Octuositatum. I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> Can uh, you say that five times fast? No, I cannot. <laughs> I, I cannot meet that challenge. It's the decree on the apostolate of the laity, but so it's kind of the document from Vatican II that's really directed at what's the role of the laity, what's their proper sphere. And the council, in so many words, essentially says just this, that the lady must assume responsibilities in an intelligent fashion. It's, it's That sense is very close to what the document is calling for, that the lady, as a part of the universal call to holiness, they have an obligation not only to, you know, to give faithfully and of their talent and of their treasure and that language that we know so well, but really they've got to take an active initiative in carrying out the church's salvific mission in, in evangelizing the whole world through their active, intelligent assumption of responsibilities within within the church. And so that's really neat. And, and the American church certainly did have an important role that it played at the, at the council, which was 1962 to 65. So after the Second World War, what kind of the experience of the church in the United States was very significant in shaping much of what, what went on there. So it's not surprising. And yet John Raskob is saying this in 1929. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, talk about, again, being a visionary, being a prophet in many ways, mm-hmm. and being willing to kind of do what he's imploring others to do. He's saying the lady needs to step up. The Second Vatican Council, you're saying, you know, that in there is the believers need to step up. And that's what John is saying. And that's what he's doing mm-hmm. is he's putting his money where his mouth is. He's challenging these bishops He's having conversations with them that are calling them to think about running the church and managing their flock in new and creative and ingenuitive ways. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it all, again, speaks to his character and his, you know, you have to be bold and you have to get stuff done. But I think as clearly we've seen, there's still this sense of obedience and docility to the church's teachings, to the hierarchy in the doctrines of the church. So there's there's no conflict here of well, now that I've given money and I've taken this active role in helping you uh, build some institution or structure, now I get to impose my own personal opinions on on teaching, on doctrine, which is, that's also an, an important yeah, I think factor. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think it's really critical. If you're interested in hearing more stories about women in philanthropy, both as fundraisers and donors, check out our new Women in Philanthropy podcast hosted by Sarah and Tara. New episodes will be posted monthly. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, Ren, do you remember a couple years ago when we went on that snowshoe hike in the woods trying to figure out how to help more Catholic organizations raise more money? I do, Andrew. We had a great conversation about the need for churches and other nonprofit organizations to build new buildings, hire new staff, and increase their mission but their need for a strong foundation of development skills. From that hike and that conversation came the idea for a manual for the annual fund, which is the fundamentals of development. From that conversation, we built the Petrus Annual Manual Program. It's crazy how just a couple of years later, we've helped dozens of nonprofit organizations just through a simple development calendar, guides and samples, and a weekly call with a consultant, raise more money and get a more solid footing for their development operations. It is great. You can learn about the annual manual yourself by visiting petrusdevelopment.com slash annual manual. So, Matt, where does John go from here? Well, 
So, so you mentioned about his leadership and getting this massive, almost celebrity status of finance guy in the Catholic Church. We read from the the letter to the Bishop of Oklahoma. It was also at this time that he was getting recognition from Rome. Rome was realizing the great stuff that he was doing in the U.S. And so, you know, we mentioned earlier in, in 26 how he was Open Time magazine and, and mm-hmm. was nominated to the Knights of, of Malta. He was also made a Knight Commander of the Order of St. Gregory the Great, which was at the time the highest honor awarded to an American Catholic layperson. And then uh, in 1928, John also received the title Private Chamberlain to the Pope, and Helena was named Lady of the Sovereign Order of Malta. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that it's not just because of his philanthropy. His philanthropy is tied to also his leadership and his challenge to using his gifts of talent and his gift of time to motivate and to encourage the priest and the church to continue to transform itself, continue to look for ways to be more present to more present to the Catholics in the world. And, you know, paying attention to the story as we go along, in his younger years, he was focused on taking that talent that you're talking about, Andrew, and investing it inside of these corporate structures for the purpose of making more money, to make more money not only for himself, but for his family and his friends and the investors inside the company. Now we're taking a step back where this change of mentality has come in where he's looking at things and taking the talent that he has. And instead of trying to do it to raise and amass more money, he's giving away money, but he's also doing it to save something that he firmly believes in. You, we talked this entire episode of what does his faith mean to him at this point in his life? How, how important is it? And we've always said it's strong, but here we're looking at something that is unequivocally pointing toward a man coming in, trying to save something that was so important in his life not only then, but in the, in his past. I mean, he is putting everything he has to make sure that the legacy he leaves behind with his church is a everlasting legacy, mm. that it can thrive and become what it needs to be. I just wanted to also point out that I think it bears mentioning again that he's doing all of this and he's garnering these accolades from from Rome in this period of intense anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. And what is he call? like you said, he's calling the church and the laity to do more, to be more bold, to be more visible. He's doing that in a period of time when the natural instinct would be to want to keep your head down. Mm-hmm. And he's not doing that. He's saying, no, we need to be more visible. We need to be out there in a greater, bigger, bolder way. And that takes some guts. Mm-hmm. It takes some real, real guts. But at the same time, he's also realizing that he's hitting some walls. And if anything in his, uh, the story of John Raskob is true, it's whenever he hates walls. He hates things going in his way and saying, hey, you can't do this or you can't do that. And kind of the route he's been taking, he's hit some major walls. And gentlemen, our next step is what we've been leading ourselves up to, this major legacy. What he finally, the culmination of, of his legacy, what he finally gets to create is what we're going to go to next. But uh, before we get there, this isn't a cliffhanger. (laughs) Before we get there, some quick things that kind of led up to it. So we talked about John's kids. He has 13. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. But but it's important to note right now that one of his kids passed away when, when they were an infant of the Spanish flu. He had another, another child pass away when they were 21 
But the one I want to talk about real quick was his son, who was going to yell at the time, his name was William, passed away from a car accident. So, so John had called the whole family together. He was going to ask him a question uh, specifically about Al Smith's campaign or being a, a, the chair for the campaign. Called all these together and on William's trip to this family meeting, he, uh, he was in a car crash and he passed away. And this was something in, in Raskob's life that shook him to his core. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it greatly Don't. affected him. Don't uh, imagine. Yeah. And so from that came a uh, foundation that they set up in his name that was also a scholarship foundation, the, the Bill Raskob Foundation. I say that also to lead to the next step that we're talking about, which is Al Smith. Al Smith, great friend of John Raskob. When he passed away, that was another time and point in his life that he was truly just devastated by what happened. And he was approached by Cardinal Spellman. And between the two of those gentlemen, they organized the Alfred E. Smith Foundation, which, you know, John was a major player in putting that together. And it was at that moment that something clicked. And he realized that he could do something similar with an everlasting family charitable foundation that could make a long-term impact on the world well past his death and his kid's death. And that's when he and Helena got together and they started putting the plans and the foundations together for a foundation for their family. The Raskob Foundation for Catholic Activities is what they finally came down to. Mm -hmm. And during that, they funded it from the Empire State Building. So John didn't own the entire rights to it, but he owned a huge chunk of it. And uh, when they sold it, they sold it for $51 million, which is basically $510 million today. And the majority of that money went into the foundation. But as they also set up, in other things that he had learned is that these business professionals, laity, should be the ones controlling that to help the church. So this is for the Catholic Church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's ran by laity, specifically his family, mm-hmm. his descendants. So he wanted to set something to kind of bind his family together after he's right, gone to. Right, right, right. So they're extremely strong business people and business-minded people. So they control that and they go. And they put it in the bylaws that no clergy can be a part of it, that it has to come from the laity of his family. So what happens if family members become priests? Are they no longer allowed to be on the board? Yeah, they have to step down from it. They can't be on the board. Hmm. Fascinating. So John and Helena put together this foundation, which has done astronomical things in the world to change. I mean, this is a behemoth of a legacy that they have left behind, that every way you turn, you see the good that has come from this legacy that they have set up. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was a part of GM. He was a part of the DNC. He was a part of DuPont. All these things, these things are huge things that he did. But they're only anthills next to a mountain of what this foundation has done. Yeah, I mean, I know just for the listener's sake, the Raskob Foundation, you said that it was funded with proceeds from the Empire State Building, but it was initially the first gifts were from John and from Helena. They each put in a million dollars. And so they got a $2 million foundation when it was founded in 1945. Today, the foundation is valued has assets of $192 million. And you'll hear from Carrie in a minute, the organizations that they funded but they funded Catholic initiatives and programs, parishes all around the world. And it really is a game changer in terms of the Catholic funding landscape. As you know, I've been doing this for a while, there's nobody that I know 
that is in the world of Catholic funding or in the world of Catholic fundraising that hasn't at some point heard of the Raskob Foundation. They've led the charge in creating FATICA, which is the foundations and donors interested in Catholic activities, which is basically kind of a consortium of Catholic foundations. They help to sort of set the, set the rules, set the guides for Catholic funding, and Raskob is really part of that, you know, the board, the family members. But I think that I want to take a step back and remember an incident that happened because it really hit me in this moment. You know, we talked earlier about how when John was 19 years old, his dad dies and his mom, uh, you know, sends him running out into the street to go get the doctor. And when he gets back, his dad is dead. And was that a driving force in his life? You know, we can certainly assume so, but it left this kind of yearning to never, never let anything bad happen on his watch. He always wanted to have a role in providing care, providing service to those around him. You know, in that incident, he wasn't able to, in his mind, wasn't able to save his dad. But here he is at the end of his life, and he has this deep abiding devotion to the church. And, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times, how it just, it's it's always there. And Dr. Farber, you know, mentioned it's this guiding force in his life. It's really important to him. And here he is, you know, he's having these conversations with bishops, he's having these conversations with priests, and they're really struggling with how to manage and how to maintain the church and how to make best use of their resources. And, you know, at some part in his mind or in his heart, is he thinking, oh my gosh, I can't let the church die. I can't fail the way that I failed my dad. And Nobody can put that failure on him. That wasn't his fault. But in his in his mind and his heart, we have to assume that he carried a little bit of that throughout the rest of his life as motivation. And so the creation of the Raskop Foundation and the establishment of that and not just the establishment of the foundation, you know, the, the resources are great, but the engagement of all of his kids and all of his grandkids and these generations of family members in the work of the church, that all makes for a stronger philanthropic side, a stronger laity that is ultimately there to lead and guide the church. And what a model for his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids and his great-great-great-grandkids and his great-great-great-great-grandkids. I mean, it's going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And he he built this legacy for the world, for his family to pass on. I mean, what a responsibility. You know, it may look daunting, but to me, if I was a Raskob, and I'm, I'm sure Carrie feels this way, it would be an honor to sit on that board and try to pass on that legacy, having the ability to, in essence, change the world in your time, mm-hmm. depending on what generation you're in. And I think it bears also talking about, through several of these episodes, we've kind of wondered, okay, what evidence do we have for John Raskob's? faith? What's his personal faith look like? What's his interior spiritual life look like? And somewhere in the conversations, you know, I got to thinking about that pretty famous passage from the letter of James. It's letter of James chapter two, verse 18, which is show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works will show you my faith. I mean, that is John Raskob to a T. That is such a Catholic sensibility that our works shine forth our faith in Christ and our Catholic faith to the world. And I think, I mean, I can't think of a, 
you get to the end of his story and you are compelled to think that he must have had an incredible personal faith to do all the good works that he did to put so much of his own personal wealth that he had amassed at the service and at the really the disposal of, of other people by creating the foundation. It's really, really incredible and inspiring. Mm-hmm. So we've got some great audio from Carrie Robinson, the great granddaughter of John Raskop. And let's listen to that. There are close to 100 direct descendants of John and Helena who are now actively engaged as volunteers in a non-remunerative manner, carrying out the philanthropic legacy John and Helena established. It's had a profound impact of evangelization on our family to be invited to serve the church through this instrument. I'm a member of the fourth generation of our family to be actively engaged in, in the foundation. And I started when I was 14 years old. My children are now both active members of the Raskop Foundation. They are the fifth generation. And the sixth generation is being born and coming into adulthood now. It's like any big, diverse family. And we, we're really diverse in every possible way, theologically and politically, geographically, in terms of, of interests and experience. We have a wide range of age. There are always kind of creative tensions in any kind of family pursuit. But I give a lot of credit to the thoughtfulness of the generations that have preceded us and my current generation and its leadership. We have learned enough to know that we are bound together as a family to the extent that we are other-centered. So the more time we dedicate as a family, looking outward, looking at the church, anticipating the church's needs, honoring and paying attention to our grantees, to the women and men ordained religious and lay who daily take up the work of the church. That is when we are bound together in much greater harmony as a family. Wow. That's it, gentlemen. We've come to the end of John Raskob. Mm-hmm. You know, a man who without him, as we've said before, there wouldn't be a GM, there wouldn't, wouldn't be a DuPont, there wouldn't be an Empire State Building, DNC would have probably looked different, GMAC. Uh, but most importantly, this foundation that they had acquired and put together at kind of the, the tail end of their lives to have their legacy live on. It's been an unbelievable road trip learning about this great man. I almost feel I owe him a bit of gratitude for what he's done in each of our lives without even knowing who he was before we started this project. It's unreal what an impact one person can have on the future. And it makes me wonder what kind of impact I can have Mm -hmm. on the future by what I do today. Many donors, I think, see their immediate impact on the world, but I'm not sure anyone can fully comprehend the existential impact their gift can make over a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. And in, in doing this project, I can't help but come back to something we talked about in episode one, which was almost this motto that John Raskob had that to me is, has just been unbelievable. And it's this, and this is how I would like to end the episode. 
Go ahead and do things. The bigger, the better. If your fundamentals are sound, avoid procrastination. Do not quibble for an hour over things which might be decided in minutes. However, if the issue at stake is large, stay as long as the next man, but go ahead and do things. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. All of our holy donors were connected to the organizations they support through great development officers. Do you want to learn to raise more money for your organization? Go to PetrusDevelopment.com education to learn about our free Petrus Academy offerings every month. See you there. And he's, he's approached by Mother Superior of the Ursulite Sisters. Ursuline. Oh, thank you. Ursuline Sisters. <laughs> they, uh, he had a son, Bobby. Bobby, Bob, Bill? William. He had a son. Lemme, slappy, slimmy, swami. Samsonite. That is the best moment yet. <laughs> Bobby, Bob, <laughs> Billy, William. We got there. But he, he had a son who was in Harvard at the time. Yale. <laughs> Do you even know anything <laughs> I told John you. Raskin. I told you when we talked about this story, I was going to need some help. This is hilarious. <laughs> Breaking down before, before our eyes. Holy donors. Holy donors. Holy donors. <laughs> <laughs>